Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Thursday, October 5th. Ready or not, we count down to October 16th, the day the military plans to begin draining the Red Hill fuel tanks. We hear from Navy Vice Admiral John Wade, who's in charge of the operation. Businesses left dry from no tourism on Maui find a way to pivot. HPR's Kuve Hirishi gives a live update from Maui. And riders get off the strike line and go back to work. But did they get what they wanted? A Maui-based filmmaker shares his insight on the new deal with Hollywood. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been two years since a series of mishaps led to fuel contamination in the water supply that sent thousands of military personnel and their dependents to hotels because of fears that their water was not safe to drink. Multiple probes are winding up as the Joint Task Force Red Hill is moving into its final phase of repairing to drain the tanks. We talked to Navy Vice Admiral John Wade this morning, head of the operation, about the risks of another spill or a fire. The military is waiting on the State Health Department to give uh, its approval on the defueling plan. My team and I remain hard at work to conduct our final preparations for uh, defueling of the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. We're still on plan to commence on the 16th, but we still need final regulator approval. Great news, we received uh, the Environmental Protection Agency approval two days ago, and we're still working with the Department of Health to get the state approval. I don't necessarily see any hard issues there. Uh, We have a final walkthrough with the the Department of Health uh, engineers and senior representatives on the 10th. And uh, we, of course, will be standing by for any additional questions, inspections that they need to do. We respect the process. And this is all part of the oversight to make us safer. So the other thing that we're doing is we're going through our final safety checks. These are meticulous tests to ensure that the equipment is operating properly. We're also doing final reviews and training of our procedures And so uh, we have a lot going on. One of the things that just happened is the Secretary of the Navy handed down some sanctions as part of their probe into what led to the uh, contamination of the water. But I imagine as you were putting together your plan to deal with the draining of the tanks that you would have had to know where were we deficient. It would be inappropriate for me to talk about the accountability decisions that the Secretary of the Navy made uh, that's beyond the purview of my mission. However, I can tell you that we have reviewed in detail the investigations from the May of 2021 and November 2021 spills and reviewed every finding, every recommendation that were in those investigations that, one, led to the Secretary of the Navy making those accountability decisions, but more importantly, we've scoured those to build our plan. These investigations are available to the public. They're in the public domain, so uh, your public can review them. But in summary, there were uh, procedural issues. In other words, the procedures that were being used were not exacting. There were shortcomings in the training program. There were shortcomings in supervision, and there were shortcomings in the preparedness to respond to a mishap. So, Catherine, 
in leading up to the preparation for uh, the evolution here has been guided by that, in addition to federal and state law, the emergency order, the consent order from the EPA, consultation with fuel experts in the field, and that's how we built our plan. You mentioned that we're still waiting on the Department of Health to give you the thumbs up to proceed, but you know, I, I know you're looking at two different things. One is avoiding any leaks, and the other is the fire hazard. First, just to reiterate the, the role of the regulators, they hold us to a standard per federal and state law, and we must obtain approvals to do anything. We've talked before about unpacking the surge tank draining, the repacking of the lines. Each of those major evolutions required approvals. This is the same thing. So we're going through that process. And again, the EPA has given us approval and we're, we're still waiting for the Department of Health, but that's okay. They're scrutinizing everything to ensure we're safe. So that's that. Your next point was, you know, what are we doing to reduce risk? And then how are we prepared in the unlikely event that we do have an issue? And that's a fair question. So we have implemented a multidimensional risk mitigation plan to reduce the likelihood and the severity of a mishap. And we've done that through a combination of ways. First of all, you're well aware of the 253 repairs, enhancements, and modifications that we've conducted. We've done a thorough quality validation process to ensure that the uh, repairs were done to standard. And then not only the government did audits, but a third-party engineering firm came in to do the testing. And then the results of those tests were given to the regulators who then conducted their tests and inspections to have multiple layers of approval. We've gone through hazard assessments, quality management plan, and then there's been thorough, thorough review and updating of all of our procedures using industry consultants. And then each one of those procedures are reviewed and approved by the regulators. And then those procedures are what we've done to enhance the training program to address the shortcomings that were identified in those investigations. And we've trained both at the individual level and at the team level. And then at the team level, we've done rehearsals at the crawl, walk, run phase. So a multi-pronged approach to reduce risk. This is a risky evolution and we must be prepared for anything. So we are equally focused on preparedness for a response to a mishap. You've highlighted a spill. You also highlighted a fire. Those are the things that we are totally focused on. The Navy has, you know, the highest standards when it comes to nuclear power and checks and double checks and triple checks, you know, on a system like that. Do you have a nuclear qualified officer involved in in all of this work? I have consulted quite a bit with the nuclear Navy Nuclear Enterprise, a number of senior officers that uh, I've served with and have mentored me. I have gone through the, the principles for the nuclear program, which is continuous improvement at all times, bringing in the best people, establishing quality supervision, respecting the dangers that we face, and then training that is constant and rigorous and then continuous audit controls and inspections, and then feedback for high-velocity learning. So as an example, every one of the milestones that we've done, the repacking, the surge tank training, we had our training directorate 
reviewing everything, every lesson learned, so that we can factor that into the next major evolution. That is part of the spirit of the Navy nuclear program. We just want to make sure all those wells have been whatever, if it's soap bubble tested or whatever the procedure is, just to make sure that they're all sound and we don't have a problem and you have shutoff valves that they're, they're going to work. Yeah, Catherine, so that's a, another layer of protection. So we are prepared for a response for a spill and also a fire. And I'll, I'll get into that in a moment. But even with that, we have worked with the Department of Health and the EPA to protect the aquifer. So we have over 400 incremental measures that have been implemented throughout the facility. So we've gone through every square inch of the tunnel. Any crack has been sealed to ensure that if there were a spill, that there wouldn't be penetration into the environment. Every French drain has been sealed. We have groundwater monitoring wells, but we've sealed the outside of that penetration to ensure that if there were a spill, it wouldn't go down through that opening. We have primary, secondary, and tertiary containment uh, under each of the valves in case there was a weep or a leak. We also have soil vapor points, uh, vault sealing, because there there are a lot of uh, penetrations, and then all the substations and additive barriers. And these are all, again, culled from the investigations uh, that we reviewed in detail in our preparation. That was Vice Admiral John Wade, head of the defueling operations at Red Hill. We'll continue our conversation with him right after this short break. U.S. grows and exports more corn than any country on earth. In Mexico, corn is more than food, it's culture. Corn is quintessentially Mexican. Sin maíz, no hay país. There's no country without corn. I'm Marco Werman. The friction between the U.S. and Mexico over genetically modified corn, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, launching its 2023-24 Hapa Symphony Series with Beyond Hapa, featuring Lea Almanza, Star Kalahiki, and others this Saturday at Hawaii Theater, myhso.org. Let's get back to our conversation that we had this morning with Vice Admiral John Wade, who is leading the effort to safely drain 14 underground fuel storage tanks at Red Hill this month. Wade went over precautions that the Navy's taking to minimize any discharges. We also wanted to know about the risk of fires. The firefighting suppression system at Red Hill uses a toxic chemical. Uh, we will not be in use because of the environmental risk. The main tanks, the AFFF system has been disabled. That was a decision made after the AFFF spill back in November, a balance between the environment, personnel safety, and also risk of a fire. So we have a multi-layered defense. One is we have now 24-7 roving security fire watch, boots on the ground, so to speak, constantly walking the entire length of the pipeline to identify any hazards 
and to report and then to take immediate action. We have fed fire on scene at the Red Hill facility to reduce the time for response if there was a spill or a fire. We have portable fire equipment at various points within the tunnel that can be used to immediately take action to slow a spread of a fire to allow personnel to evacuate and to buy time for fed fire to get in. We also have the sprinkler system, so it's part of a multi-pronged approach. Now, uh, just to be clear to your audience, there are two other AFFF systems that are on Pearl Harbor that are not above the aquifer that must still be used and intact because that is the only means to put out a fire if there is a fire at the pump house, which is at the very end of the tunnel and at the upper tank farm. But the Department of Defense is moving away from AFFF and PFAS by 2024. It's just they don't have the new system in place in time for defueling. So if we had waited for that, we wouldn't defuel for another year and a half. And that that isn't acceptable at all. So that's why we're continuing to press with the defueling as scheduled. But the AFFF systems on Pearl, uh, we've done system grooms. We've tested everything. We've gone through training to just ensure that in the unlikely event we have to use them, that it'll be ready. And have we done in-person drills with HAIMA and the city and county uh, and the federal firefighters? I know you were doing tabletop drills, but have we done in-person drills? Catherine, we have, and that's critically important. In January, we created an interagency working group to ensure that we had the right connectivity with not only all the DOD organizations that were involved if we had a mishap, but also the state and local officials that we would have to collaborate with for mutual support, but also effective communication. And as you know, we had the open house just the other day, and a number of concerned public members were referencing the Maui fire and ensuring that we had done our due diligence in working with the state and local officials. I assured them that we had we're still we're still in communication. In fact, Admiral Barnett, who is supporting to me, the response and engaged with AIMA and the emergency management folks of the county and city and state level, and we'll continue that coordination throughout the defueling process. You mentioned the Lahaina fires, and I think there was some concern about any brush that might be up at the vents. You know where the tanks are at the upper levels. Have we done anything to clear back? any brush? I don't know what the threat or the risk is for that kind of sure. thing. Sure. No, that, that's a great question. Uh, yes. Uh, Fed Fire, who is responsible for fire response, has uh, taken a proactive approach for the you know trees and bushes and uh, around the fence lines. But in particular, there are uh, vents uh, for the tanks that are directly above them uh, on the ridge. One of them is inactive, but there are four that are uh, active. And they're, they're positive pressure. In other words, there's fans that blow air out, so we're not ingesting any air. But on top of that, the brush has been cleared 25 feet, and there's a like a, a vent system with a housing area that, you know, would deflect any type of uh, debris that could go down into the tanks. And of course, we're going to be monitoring weather, humidity, and any threat of uh, a fire will be part of our risk calculus as we conduct our defuel. And as far as the fumes, how do you get 
rid of them if they're, let's say, in the tunnel? You know, where do they blow it to? So that's a separate uh, ventilation system. That uh, is part of our tunnel ventilation. There's a whole bunch of exhaust fans, and they're mostly near uh, Adit 3, which is a tunnel entrance uh, 3. And, um, you know, we'll be monitoring. In fact, this gives me a great opportunity to highlight an issue that uh, came out at the open house and then also at the community representative initiative yesterday about monitoring of air. And, you know, we're going to be monitoring the air to ensure that it meets uh, federal and state standards. And uh, that's an important part of our layered defense to ensure safety of the workers, but also safety of those outside the facility, whether on base or off base. Yeah, I did just see a a story about how there have been, I forget, like 40 air monitors that have been set up uh, across, you know, the base. I mean, that is part of this whole Red Hill plan. There's monitors inside the tunnel and monitors outside um, Red Hill and then in the surrounding areas all around the base. It's part of our multi-layered effort to ensure safety. And I do admit, though, there was some concern the way this was communicated to the, to the public. Uh, I take the hit for this. You know, these have been positioned uh, as a precaution to ensure uh, we're monitoring and uh, I could have done a better job in coordinating with all the other organizations that are supporting me uh, to communicate this. So there was a letter that was sent. It wasn't clear. I've directed Admiral Barnett and his team to do uh, a correction to the letter to make sure that uh, everyone understands what we're doing and why. Okay, but it is part of just monitoring the uh, air quality because of many additional fumes that could be produced during the That's defueling. That's correct. It's okay. for defueling, but then it's also for the longer term as we conduct a closure, and that's a Navy responsibility. And then as far as the notification for the public, if something goes awry over the next three months, how is the public going to know about it? Have you folks worked out a protocol? We have, Catherine, and I appreciate that question. This question came up at the open house. The question also uh, came out at the uh, community representative initiative meeting last night. So we are committed to full transparency. And I know that there were shortcomings in the November 2021 spill, again, reviewing the investigations and the lessons learned. And so it's only actions that are going to convince the public. And I would just highlight, you know, when we were doing repacking, we had a weep. That was a drip. It wasn't a leak, but it was a drip. And that drip was one drip every hour. And then we tightened it. And it was reduced to one drip every four hours. And then we made a risk decision to stop repacking and then do repairs, get it approved and tested, and then continue. And then we communicated to the public our delay and why we were doing it. We will follow that same methodology. It's critically important. So that's number one. How are we going to communicate? So we're going to do a multi-pronged approach. We have our app, and I would highly encourage the public to download this. If you just type in Red Hill in Google or in Apple stores, uh, you can download it. We have over 20,000 that have uh, downloaded it. So we're going to send out alerts. But uh, for the military, those on base, we have what's called a giant system, which is loudspeakers. We have an ad hoc system, which sends out emails, texts, calls, everyone that is registered. We'll also uh, work with the local news agencies and get out uh, press releases. We'll go on social media. We'll do press conferences. 
conference calls, whatever we need to do to get the word out uh, to ensure that our military families and those that work on base are aware. And then as part of our interagency working group, working with the city, county, and state officials, we will coordinate with Hawaii's Department of Emergency Management and other civil authorities and coordinate on all notifications as required. It's critically important that we do that as we uh, conduct this mission. I know that there's concern for the uh, fire watchers uh, because I believe it's between Attic 2 and Attic 3. There's like a two-mile stretch. You know, there's a concern for getting out safely if there's a problem. In the event of a power outage, you know, because the systems maybe that are in place, there are older systems and you have to mechanically or manually shut things off. You know, is there a plan to, to address that? So first of all, the safety of all those that are, you know, conducting this operation is critically important. So we've applied measures to reduce risk for those that are operating inside the tunnel, whether it's, you know, breathing devices or spotlights that they carry on, radios with backup power. So that's critically important. We also know exactly where each of our roving security firewatch personnel are, same with our fuel operators. That is an important piece to this. Part of their training syllabus was emergency egress. They know where the exits are. We've trained how to do that in dark conditions if they were smoke. And so, you know, that's an important piece. Uh, but, but, but there is risk there, and that's why we've trained. It's not unlike me, in, who has commanded a number of ships, where we do the same type of training for those that are working in the engineering spaces or in, you know, compartments that are low below the waterline, it's critical that everyone knows how to escape and how to take care of each other. That was Navy Vice Admiral John Wade talking to us this morning about the next steps to defuel the underground fuel tanks. State health officials will do a final walkthrough on October 10th. A blessing will be held on Saturday the 14th with defueling to begin Monday the 16th. Today on The Daily. For decades, the world seemed to be winning the war against mosquitoes and the deadly diseases that they carry. Now, we're once again losing that battle. I'm Mike Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily. From The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from ANA Ahamele, featuring classical pianist Nobuyuki Tsuji performing at the Tom Moffat Waikiki Shell November 19th. Tickets at BlaisdellCenter.com and Ticketmaster.com. marks two months since the Maui wildfires, and October 8th is said to be the day we welcome tourists back to the Valley Isle. But there's some pushback by residents who say they aren't ready to open the doors to visitors. But there are many whose jobs are tied to tourism. This morning, we talked to HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi, who is on Maui today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. 
that uh, slowdown in tourism on Maui has uh, prompted some local companies that typically cater to visitors to pivot to serve the needs of displaced West Maui residents. And that who, uh, that's who we've been speaking to uh, this week. For some, it's sort of this given kuleana that you are going to do. That's what you do when, when these disasters happen. And for others, it uh, may be a new uh, business model. So prior to the Maui wildfires, Hawaii Tours was running about a dozen or so tours a day, uh, mostly to Hana. And since August 8th, like many other businesses on the island, they've taken a financial hit, uh, issuing over $1 million in refunds for bookings made over the next eight months. Uh, they've got about 20 drivers employed there, still employed, and 10 uh, mostly tour vans, so these sprinter vans. Uh, that they've since decided to put to work in the relief effort. Christopher Ishizaka, who heads Maui Operations for Hawaii Tours, uh, spearheaded the company's effort to pivot to serving the needs of West Maui. The day after the fire, I was at home and I just was seeing everything that was happening and I was thinking that we needed to go ahead and, and do something, right? Because I was like, we, we, we do have vehicles, right? We have drivers. We went over there the next morning. We got three or four busloads of evacuees taken out and uh, went to all the distribution centers at the time. And at that time, there was just like, you know, a blanket on the ground with some supplies. Then I got to know all the leaders there and I asked them what they needed, what was the most essential needs. And everything going on now is kind of a growth of that, I guess, is the evolvement of that. We've started shuttles, we do non-emergency medical transportation, we do uh, the volunteers, we get supplies. Yeah, you know, you, you hear, we heard so much about pivot, right, during the pandemic, and these companies just saw the need and they're filling it. Right, uh, sort of repurposing uh, what uh, resources they did have to do so. Um, over in McKenna, Timothy Lara, founder of Hawaiian Paddle Sports, and Griff Dempsey, owner and operator of Aloha Kayaks. Maui offered a little ocean therapy to displace Lahaina residents with uh, free kayak tours. Uh, they did it every weekend uh, for the month of September. Uh, Laura says there wasn't a massive response from the community at the time. He thinks because it was a bit too early, folks were still trying to figure out their housing, schooling, employment, um, but they do, he tells me, plan uh, to offer it up again uh, this month and see if there may be more stable, uh, you know, stabilization in the community to um, have folks come in and see that healing power of the ocean uh, is something that Laura recalls seeing when he offered free surf lessons once the stay-at-home order under COVID-19 was lifted uh, here on Maui. But uh, like Hawaii Tours, both businesses took a massive Hit from the drop in tourism, uh, Lara says he lost, you know, a net $7,000 in August alone. And he says he, he can do breaking even, but losing continuously over the next couple of months is hurtful. He, he says uh, they're looking forward to a mindful and respectful reopening. Uh, but when asked what drove them to pivot toward caring for residents, Lara says it was simply kuleana. The vision of our company is to cultivate Kuleana globally, and we do that through the mission, which is ecotours that foster connection. And so we realize that we as a company operating in Hawaii and in Maui uh, have Kuleana this place. And so um, what we try to do is impress that upon the global visitor industry that visits us, that they also carry Kuleana, not just here, but also wherever they're from. So when things like this happen, we just jump in and do these things. It's not a, trying to explain the why is like, how, how do you do that? It's just because it needs to be done.
for Ishizaka, the relief work that Hawaii Tours has been undertaking has been costing him, he estimates, at least $5,000 a day to pay drivers alone. Uh, they haven't received government aid or reimbursement, uh, but Ishizaka says he's actually planning to continue providing uh, these services in a separate way. Our more focus has been to return to work, but in a meaningful way. Like this stuff needs to get done anyway. So we're going to form our own 501C. It's called LETS, uh, Local Emergency Transportation Services. And basically we're going to use Hawaii tours on every island so we can respond quickly on every island. I just feel like there's a need for this. Um, there was no plans about this before this. We were just driving tours, but um, because it's been so so impactful i uh there's no reason that we can't start this on every other island and hopefully get some funding to continue doing it that's a great idea good for him for coming up with that <laughs> it's interesting yeah and, and we should note that um hawaii tours is a statewide uh company and so he was he did say that you know because of uh operations on other islands still going and being able to help out the bigger family of hawaii tours is one of the biggest reasons why he's able to continue uh, doing what he's doing on Maui and um, that his, you know, higher ups are open to the idea of, you know, what what happens if this happens or what will we do once if this happens again? We saw it during COVID-19, the shutdown of tourism. So this is sort of this interesting um, aspect that's coming out of <laughs> uh, this situation that we have here on Maui. But, uh, it, you know, not everyone, uh, not every company on this island has that has that luxury. Uh, I think the latest estimates are about 8,800 people are still out of work on Maui, um, including residents who were not directly affected by the fire. And so you have um, folks like uh, one of the new drivers at Hawaii Tours, Gannon Gilmore of Kula, who says he, you know, has mixed feelings about the reopening of tourism in West Maui. It is a sensitive subject, and and I completely agree on almost on literally every side of it because you know I, I do kind of feel that there's a certain ex, ex, element of it where like maybe we shouldn't have tourism open literally so soon, especially for people going to the west side. But at the same time, like you know our economy is really tied to the tourism industry, so without that, you know I it would be a shame to watch a whole island suffer. It would be nice to find a middle road. Yeah, it, it it's tough. You can see both sides. Exactly. I know the uh, Maui County Council uh, woman, Kiani Rollins-Fernandez of Molokai, is uh, proposing a resolution that's uh, going to go before a hearing tomorrow before the council, Resol 23215, that's asking for the delay of uh, reopening tourism, but also having um, this idea of tying the reopening to benchmarks of community stability, because that is sort of uh, one of the the pushbacks from those in the community there in Lahaina is that they don't feel stable enough or ready to, you know, be able to put on that smile uh, when tourists come. But on the other hand, there's this idea that, you know, tourists aren't going to immediately start flocking to this place. It is a phased reopening. And uh, there are folks who are sensitive to, to the people of Lahaina and not wanting to head back. And so that leaves folks who aren't uh, operating, you know, tours necessarily in West Maui, but on the rest of the island sort of 
trying to figure out what they can do uh, moving forward. Uh, it was an interesting uh, from uh, point from Lara actually saying that, you know, under COVID-19, they saw this same uh, impact to tourism, but nothing was done to sort of fully pivot um, as an economy. But there were also lots of resources for folks who weren't directly, you know, folks that weren't directly impacted by this disaster, uh, PPP loans and, and grants and other sort of um resources to keep them going while people figure out how to reopen tourism. So you see if that's something that's coming down the line in the yeah. coming months. And you're going to be keeping an eye on that uh, this weekend, so we'll check in uh, later as well. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Oh, mahalo. And that was HPR's Kuvehi Rishi talking with us from Maui about how businesses are coping since tourism has dropped off since the fires. <music> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. Jordan Peele is the current king of black horror, and recently he's been working with new and legendary voices in the game to redefine the genre. It's not that everyone had get out to me. It's that everyone had an expression of their fear. And you can't ignore your blackness when you're writing a horror story. Jordan Peele on Black Horror, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. During Island Air bankruptcy hearings this week, uh, billionaire Larry Ellison made a rare appearance here in Honolulu. He took the stand yesterday. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Madeline List was there at that hearing and joins us to talk about the shutdown of the airline. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. So, gosh, what was it like uh, in the courtroom? Yes, uh, definitely so. We saw Larry Ellison come in in the morning, and he testified about Island Air's bankruptcy. The airline that was at one time the second largest airline in the state uh, went bankrupt in 2017, and the around 400 employees that they had at the time have alleged that they were let go with no notice, that they weren't paid their final paychecks, that their medical premiums weren't paid. So he had to answer some questions about that and uh, talk about what he knew about the airline's financial status and when he knew it. Yes, and I recall covering that story. It was very traumatic. So many employees out of work, uh, you know, the abrupt shutdown and it left a lot of people hanging. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he said in court that he didn't know at the time that employees had been let go without being paid their final paychecks. And that was a large theme. Um, the plaintiff's attorney asked him questions about that. Um, the, the attorney asked, you know, did you try reaching out to employees? Did you try to get people the wages that they were owed? And, um, you know, Ellison said that he hadn't considered that at the time. He said he didn't think about, you know, trying to reach out to each and every person um, after this shutdown. So that was an interesting moment there in the courtroom. So were there any uh, employees in the in the galley there watching? I'm curious about that. Um, I'm not sure. There weren't too many people there, um, you know, in the, the spectator section watching, actually. Um, you know, there were a few other executives who were going to be called up to testify, some other former Island Air executives and investors. Um, this was the, yesterday was the seventh day of the trial, and it's still ongoing. You know, they have dates scheduled through next week. So it'll be interesting to see what the outcome is. So he was saying that he wasn't aware that these employees weren't being paid. Yes, and he said that, you know, at the time of the bankruptcy in 2017, he only had a one-third ownership of the company that he had sold, you know, two-thirds of the controlling interest to some other investors who, you know, will also have testified and will be called to testify in this um, going forward. But it definitely, you know, raised some questions about issues with the airline. Um, you know, we did stories in the past about customers, you know, complaining about the service, um, the airline service, especially residents of Molokai. You know, they really felt like the airline wasn't serving them and that Ellison was really focused on service to Lanai, of course, the island that he owns. So, Yeah, and he owns uh, Lanai Air, right? A, a small private airline. Yes, yep, he still owns that airline, which focuses on, you know, luxury travel. Um, he sells kind of packages <laughs> that go to the Four Seasons, um, which he also owns. So, yeah, he talked about that a little bit, too, and how, you know, that airline is one that can compete with Hawaiian Air because it offers this service that really caters to wealthy travelers. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how this case re is resolved, but it sounded sort of like the investors were kind of playing chicken to see if maybe he would pony up some money or if the other folks would, uh, you know, uh, come up with the cash. Yeah, yeah, the allegations are that he kind of kept this airline afloat just long enough so that five airplanes could be sold and that then it was, you know, just shut down, filed for bankruptcy, shut down very quickly without, you know, giving the employees the notice that they needed. Well, I was surprised to learn that, you know, this case has been you know, just hanging out there after all these years. Yeah, it was actually, it was filed in 2019. Um, and yes, yeah, so we, I'm still not sure. We, you know, we don't know exactly when it will wrap up. But like I said earlier, you know, um, testimony will still continue into next week. So we should be seeing, you know, some closure happenings shortly. Yeah, because that was 2017. And yeah, like I said, just recalled uh, a lot of heartbreak, you know, when that airline just closed abruptly. It's never... Uh, a, a pleasant thing to watch a company uh, shut down like that because it affects so many people, you know, from the employees to the vendors. And it, it's, you know, really the, a service for those islands. So yeah, it's absolutely. tough. Especially to the neighbor islands. You know, I know that air travel is so essential to residents there and having options, you know, and enough ways to be able to get between the islands is so important. Um, he did touch on that a little bit. He said, you know, competition from Hawaiian Airlines was really difficult uh, at the time. So, Yep. It, the, the, the airline business it can be cutthroat. But thank you so much, Madeline. Thank you. That was reporter Madeline List with today's reality check. Uh, to read her story, uh, go to civilbeat.org.
Screenwriters are back at work after the 148-day Writers Guild of America strike came to an end last week. So was the sacrifice worth it? What did they gain? Stefan Schaefer is a Maui filmmaker. He wrote and directed the 2020 feature film, Aloha Surf Hotel. As a member of the WGA, he participated in the strike and this week voted to approve the new deal with Hollywood. The Conversations, Russell Subiano talked with Schaefer about how the deal addresses the key issues of the strike. I saw the post that you made on social media. You shared that the new writer's deal is a good one. Can you give us some of the highlights of the new deal? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the sticking points were AI and the use of, you know, large language models and how that's going to be dealt with. And I think everyone can relate to that because it's impacting almost every industry right now. Also, so historically, writers would get a residual if their content was rebroadcast in other markets, international markets, or just rebroadcast domestically. And with the streamers being so important now, that's sort of been a big question mark. They've been unwilling to share how often your content is viewed. And so there's been no way for the creators of content, both feature film and TV shows, to know how well it's doing, how much money it's making for these streamers. And so that was another big sticking point, which was, you know, if you write a film that does incredibly well globally, it'd be great to know what those metrics are and how well it's done and also share in the, in the profit. And if you look at the profitability graphs on some of the streamers, you see that, you know, they've sort of gone exponentially up over the last decade. And then if you look at what the writers have yield, you know, how it's trickled down to us, it hasn't matched that sort of growth. So that was a, that was a real strong stance that the guild was taking. And, the streamers were very reluctant to budge on that. I get the feeling that the income issue that writers had with streamers, it sounds like it was actually much more dire situation than a lot of people think. This is what Aaron Kandel said to us in the early days of the writer's strike. And Aaron Kandel is one of the co-writers of the Disney film Moana. He said that writers were being squeezed in a way that made it impossible to write as a profession and be able to support a family, kids, a mortgage, that even as streaming was getting bigger and streaming companies were making record profits, writers were seeing a reduction in income. Is that pretty accurate? And can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how that was addressed in the New Deal? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. And I think you need to see this in the context of other union fights more broadly, historically. And Strikes have always been a way for labor to try to create a middle-class life. And that includes, you know, a salary that you can support your family on, health benefits, pension. And that's what this is all about, really. I think what Aaron is, is referencing is there's a lot of unpaid development work. So if you look at the pay, if you're hired to write a feature film that's a high-budget film, the pay may seem really good, you know, maybe well over $100,000. But you also have to factor in that it took time to get to that point that you actually are signing a contract to write that script, especially with the streamers and the new TV content. There's a lot of unpaid development work that goes on. So I myself have just gone through this. I have a show that's about to go out. We're about to take it out. And I've probably worked months on creating the elements that will be part of that pitch. So there's 
a way in which I think writers feel like they're, they're taken advantage of in this development process where they do all this work that's highly speculative. It's unpaid. We're the ones creating the content that, you know, th- these companies are so hungry for, but you don't know if it's ever going to go to a point where you actually sign a contract. And so that was also built into this new deal that it's a little bit more structured in terms of how you enter that initial phase of development with a production company and or a, a, a studio. One of the other issues that Aaron touched on in our interview with him was protection from the use of AI. Can you talk a little bit about why AI is a threat to your profession and how the New Deal addresses that? Yeah, and I think this is something that's the use of AI and AI in general is developing so quickly. I think it's hard to, hard to know what even in six months we'll be facing. But the big concern, of course, is that writers on some level become obsolete. A studio executive can punch in a set of variables into chat GPT, give me a film or a TV show set on Maui with a local cast and a tourist. You just put in the variables and it'll spit out multiple different film or TV scenarios. So, And you can go from that point to say actually generate a, a screenplay. And the way in which chat GPT is doing that is... It sucked up all the information and all the films that have come before. And through this incredible ability that it has, it can, it can actually create pretty compelling storylines and dialogue. And so the question for us is, well, in five years, are writers even needed? So the Guild wanted to make sure that the studios didn't have the ability to basically just come up with story ideas and have fully fleshed out scripts that then take into production because ultimately whatever is generated, there is some underlying IP that it's based on. So it's based on some intellectual property that existed at some point in human history. And so I think, you know, there's all sorts of legal issues there, but basically what the determination was and what they resolved was AI can be used in the development process as long as all parties know that it's being used, but that no scripts that, are generated from AI would would ever have the WGA stamp. So in effect, the studios are not going to be able to not hire a writer and produce something that's yeah. generated by by a large language model. And I think, you know, this is going to be an ongoing discussion. I think they have a whole subset of lawyers looking at this and testifying going to Congress. This is obviously a much bigger question uh, in terms of all sorts of creatives and everyone's work. But it does feel good that at least they, they tackled it head on and the, the studios seem to at least acknowledge that we can't be obsolete quite yet. It's hard to believe that AI could ever write something as nuanced as a human being could. But who knows? But I mean, even just look at from one iteration of chat GPT to the next, you know, how much better it is. Right now, the studios can come up with ideas through AI but then they have to share that information with, with the writer. And then the writer could theoretically take a scenario that was generated out of AI and write a screenplay, but not the actual script. The script cannot be written by ChatGPT. You also said on social media that solidarity yielded results. Do you and your fellow writers, was that 148-day strike, was it worth it? Did you guys get what you wanted to get? Yes, I think... Um, you know, the writers didn't get everything they were asking for, but certainly I think there was real solidarity. And I think 
you know, we're actually just yesterday I, I voted on the on the new contract. So I think there'll be an overwhelming, you know, high ninety percent voting thumbs up on this deal. And I think that you know there was real cohesiveness. I'm out here on Maui, so I can go and march in the picket lines in my backyard by myself. But if you were in LA or in New York, I think it would have been hard to ignore, you know, the 11,000 plus writers that were out there making a lot of noise. And I think that the public opinion was really behind them because they see the reality, which is these, particularly the streamers, have been incredibly profitable and they've, they're a huge part of all our, of our lives. And then when they hear the reality of, you know, I, I, there was one story that went around of one of the writers on The Bear, which was, you know, one of the most successful shows, at least critically, couldn't afford to pay his rent. He was on all 10 episodes of that first season and literally couldn't pay his rent because by the time, you know, bills were paid, it just, you know, it wasn't enough. And so when you hear that, having watched that show, such a moving show and an incredible show and really talked about broadly that's surprising to people. You know, you should be able to be on a hit show and have a decent life. You know, it's not like this guy's living in the Hollywood Hills in some multi-million dollar mansion. He's just trying to pay rent in Brooklyn. So now that there is an agreement, what's the next step? Does everybody kind of just pick up where they left off? So yeah, everyone now goes, goes back to work for the next three years. We have a contract that I think everyone is pretty happy with. I don't know how happy the studios are with it, Part of the issue, I think, on that side was there's a real difference between the legacy studios, so that would be Sony, Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. Disney, and the streamers, because I think they have different interests, and that's why it got a little bit more complicated, and we started hearing that the legacy studios wanted to settle earlier, but the streamers were happy to drag it out because it actually benefited their business model. So I don't think they had the same sort of cohesive position and ultimately, I think that's why we got a better deal. If you look at it just objectively, I think the writers are coming out of it feeling good. They got bumps across the board in terms of pays for film, pays for development, pays for TV, number of people in the writing room, protections with AI, little bump in pension and health. So I think everyone's pretty happy for the next three years. And I think the big sort of the existential question with AI is something that's going to be continued to be negotiated. <laughs> Stefan Schaefer, thanks so much for your time, man. Always great talking to you, Russell. Thank you. That was Maui-based screenwriter and filmmaker Stefan Schaefer talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. SAG after the Actors Union continues its strike with um, further negotiations scheduled for tomorrow. Schaefer says the terms of the new WGA deal could set a precedent for those negotiations and help bring an end to that strike. Maui. that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, did you hear the news? Kumuhula, Patrick Makuakani honored with the top prize in the arts field, and it comes with a really, really big prize. Call our talkback line. Wish him well. Wish him congrats at 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>